I'm going to stick to one beer this time because my I don't know if you noticed, but there were several points in the last episode where I was like slurry as shit. <laughs> I didn't even... <laughs> a beer and a half in and I couldn't properly pronounce like one word every sentence. Well, I'm already in my third glass of white, so <laughs> F it. Now I have our cold open. Three lights, four lights, five laps. Pause. Go, go, go. He has been told to come in lap after lap after lap. And what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it. Stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it. Get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton. Oh, oh, no. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unqualified Podcast, a podcast by two gentlemen with no business being in this business. I am happily joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Gerald Carter, in the booth tonight. We are coming to you on a week delay, unfortunately, uh, as is true of the race writ large. We had some, uh, some may say minor, some may say major, flooding in the studio last week, unable to record. A little disappointed we couldn't get the Surf Pro sponsorship in place by the episode this week, but we're back. Uh, you know, we've wrung out our clothes, microphones are dry, and we're ready to talk about Monaco, Barcelona, and all things ahead. Gerald, how are you, buddy? You know, I am great. We would have loved to be there, you know, from our trackside studio, because you know how how well we we do traveling production as we've proven time in and time again but you know sometimes the elements are just too much to surpass skill and superior technology uh and it just wasn't meant to be so unfortunately imola was uh, was was canceled but rightly so at least in my opinion um given the flooding the damage to the community um but there may did, be who some did who you also donate a, did you also donate a million dollars to the recovery and you know act like it was the most heroic thing you'd ever done in your life if uh if I similarly donated one ten thousandth of my annual revenue yes my ten dollars to Imola would have uh would have been a great a great contribution to the cause I mean Gerald, just think about how many flooded completely obliterated destroyed houses in that community of tens of thousands of people, that $1 million is going to repair. I mean, just think about it. At least they were willing to donate the unused catering food instead of throwing it in the dumpster. How creative. <laughs> Give me a break. So I'm getting man. a sense that you didn't find the F1 oh. and Ferrari donations of $1 million round dollars uh, to be to be sufficient. The Sky Sports circle jerk on how good F1 was as a result of their response to that situation it was just a little much for me. Like, I, I I just, you know, why do we even have to talk about it? Like, don't use it as an opportunity to score points. Applaud them for making the call to cancel the race early and just leave it at that. We don't have to go above and beyond on the, you know, this drawing me a picture of Stefano going up to the mayor and arm in arm. We're in this together, man. No, you're not. You never even flew into the country. Like, come on, man. Like, the only people that are in this with you are the unfortunate souls that work for DHL and all the logistics people, the teams who were already on the ground and then had to unpack and pack all that shit in the porn rain. They're the only people that were really in it. Everybody else was sitting in their hotel suite, 
from some other part of the world or hadn't flown in yet on their private jet and was trying to score some PR points on F1 being behind the local community. I'm not buying it. I thought it was all BS. Just like your political positions, it's never enough. You know, you always expect the big guy to give you more. I'm not a welfare state guy. Don't you dare. Don't you dare put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you dare. I mean, you don't give him any credit for at least, I mean, they talked so much about positions here or there, but at least they did something in some in an area, both from, you know, AlphaTauri being positioned there to the racetrack being there, contributing to, actually tangibly contributing to a cause rather than giving lip service. So maybe it's not yeah, as much I, as I'd I, like to see, but at least it's, at least it's progress. They deserve credit, but it's all about degrees of severity. I just think it went too far, you know? And and I think that the comparison to spa as like the wrong approach for things like this is a false equivalence because spa as an area didn't, ha- like it wasn't a natural disaster in spa. It was just a bad weekend of weather that otherwise didn't affect the local community. This was literally a fucking natural disaster in Northern Italy. Like it's completely different. It would be like if they were trying to host the, freaking race in Miami and a category four was about to blow in. It's like, yeah, like it was, the writing was on the wall, bro. Like you, (laughs) you know, you think Ron DeSantis is going to do a lot of good with your million dollars for Miami day to rebuild itself. Like get, get out of here. Like, like in the moment, I thought the bigger thing that struck me was the, the universality of the responses from all of the teams, the drivers in support of F1's decision to cancel the race. And curious to get your thoughts on if you thought that was was overkill uh, and why they felt like they had to go to that degree. Was it just a a risk mitigation from the backlash, you know, from Spa the prior year and concern with people were going to be so mad that they canceled this race that they had to show this solidarity in the decision to cancel the race? Like even Verstappen.com had to, publish a statement. And I was like, this seems like overkill. I mean, who's, what fans are really questioning this? And are, are we giving them that much time of day that we feel like we need to justify the cancellation to this degree? It's hard to know in advance that once the flooding begins occurring and the photographs come out, that the public consensus is going to be as unified as it was mm-hmm. that they made the right decision. You know what I mean? Because it's all like what they're betting on is like, what are the photographs going to look like this weekend? And how is that going to make me people feel about our decision? And so I think they were just trying to build as much advocacy as they could. So I, I don't know that I actually blame them for that. It's the points kind of scoring afterwards about like their role and helping on the recovery that I was that specifically pissed off. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, while it seemed excessive, it's probably good PR. I mean, that's classic, like manufacturing consent, right? You get the preponderance of voices in support of it. And then you look like the psychopath if you have a differing opinion. So I, I think the, the obviously the big highlight that was much talked about wasn't the money necessarily donated from the teams or F1, but Yuki got a lot of love being on a team that's based locally. And I'm sure others on the team, I don't doubt Gasly was out there as well, but Sonoda got the picture snapped of him helping the cleanup efforts. And it just reminded me of the sort of quintessential Japanese culture, right? When you watch at like the World Cup or the Olympics, you know, folks sticking behind to clean up the stadium. And so, again, I thought that was a good admirable action of, you know, doing something locally that you can to make a difference. So shout out to Yuki. I'm more I continue to be on the Yuki train. So you'll get there. 
I'm sure. I'm sure it had nothing to do with his desire to keep his seat next year. Wow. Okay. Sorry, wow. that was too far. That was too far. No, that was too far. That was too far. I'm, sorry. Just, I'm sorry. I'm it sorry. It was just I didn't mean that. Blind self-interest. Nice. I didn't mean that. All right. Well, with did that Did we like switch did we like do like a switch bodies like tonight? I don't know. I feel like I'm a, yeah. you've done something to me. <laughs> yeah, we got a little voodoo like, going on. Is... I'm like the sentimental <laughs> yeah. and like rational oh. one and you're just the hostile conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Uh, God, I hope not. All right. Take Let's get take us on. Yeah, let's move on from uh, the absence of the Imola GP. And now we were on to Monaco. So quick recap, and then we will dive in. Started off with a thrilling qualifying Q3 with about three minutes left. Ocon takes pole. And then it's just a quick succession of each driver on their final lap taking taking the pole position momentarily. First Leclerc, then Alonso, then Verstappen, uh, bringing it home on his final lap. Within qualifying, really, while Leclerc qualified in third place ahead of Ocon, uh, he, he was penalized, three-place penalty for impeding Ocon, uh, who ultimately finished on the podium. And so we had a top three start and finish the same way. But I think it was even riveting in through Q1, where you had drivers like Hamilton and Signs barely making it into Q2 again on their last lap in Q1. So per per Monaco, as usual, the most exciting part of the weekend came on Saturday. Um, and so that was a great time. But turning to the race, um, you know, with Verstappen, Alonso out front. Wait, wait, but yeah. before, before we go to the race, can I pose the question? Yes. Where does that rank for you in terms of qualifying sessions you've seen all time, just for pure entertainment? I mean, it's hard to say because I feel like a lot of qualifying sessions have that kind of last second, last lap dynamic. I felt like because I didn't watch all of the stuff on time this weekend uh, because of other engagements, I was seeing some of the headlines and like the reactions after the fact before I had had the chance to watch it. And it seemed so effusive of how exciting the qualifying was. And I thought, yeah, it's it was a very good qualifying, but like I wouldn't put that in front of the rain qualifying where Russell did a tremendous job or where Stroll surprised people in the rain. So I feel like there's a lot that would rival that. I wouldn't put that as markedly like a, a truly unique qualifying, but I think the number of drivers who topped the times with two and a half minutes left was rather, rather surprising. Why did you, you find this one to be particularly special? I, I, I struggled to find a qualifying session in my memory that I thought was better than this. I mean, I don't think it, it – I, I didn't leave that saying, oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen. But I, the two examples you just mentioned of Russell and Stroll would kind of seem to indicate, like, in qualifying, you value, like, unpredictability or people significantly outperforming their normal order. That necessarily, other than Ocon, wasn't the case in this session. But I thought in terms of the pure quality of Q3 and guys just continually one-upping and besting each other's quality, mistake-free, by the way, I, I don't recall a session quite like this one. Mm. And I'm going to be honest with you. Watching the last sector of Max's last lap on the onboard and the side-by-side -side of the broadcast gave me chills. His, his line through the swimming pool chicane was absolutely preposterous. I, like... I I I still do not know how he did not snap a steering rod. Like 
it, he he was more than just kissing the wall. He, like he compressed the tire against the wall and didn't slow down and and, and gained literally two tenths in one chicane because he had the balls to go that much straighter. Well, that's like, where he was consistently outperforming others through the lap. Yeah. And you know he didn't set faster sectors in the previous one, so there was probably some tire saving. But you watch that, and it is literally every turn was one inch or less from entry Unreal. or exit. And while all the drivers do that at different points, to see that consistently at like every point where he's close to the wall, that was an impressive an impressive finish. And he needed I, it because he still I, only finished less than a tenth ahead. So, I mean, it's not like he created massive margin with with that performance. I mean, he barely qualified. And, and that would have been Alonzo's, what I believe is his best chance to win a race this season, barring, you know, double DNFs for Red Bull or, or some other circumstance. I mean, that was his chance. And he was eight tenths of a second or, uh, you know, eight hundredths of a second away. I love any dynamic in F1 where the difference is just between two drivers is truly just whether one driver had the stones to take a risky line and the other one didn't. I I love that. And like, you know, another another series of turns is often described that way is um Maggots and Beckett's at Silverstone, which is like, do you have the stones to go flat out through this chicane or not? And that's what's gonna determine whether you're in Q three or Q two, you know? Uh, I, I just love that. And, and the fact that Max had it and did it consistently without crashing, it's just pure class, man. Like, even if you hate the guy, like that was just him and Alonzo, just a battle of just Titans. And then Ocon trying to spoil the party. Thank God. I was just saying, I know you I was waiting for when that was, when that was going to happen and I'll be the one to do it. Cause you <sighs> won't, but I mean, you got to give credit to, to Ocon, right? I mean, while the team brought some upgrades, different side pod or exaggerated side pod, you know, water slide, he still delivered on the weekend in a very difficult track. And so, you know, both car and driver performing, performing well, despite all the haters. I really, really badly wanted to give him some credit. Mm, I did. I'm sure. And I was ready to be kind of around for the is he an underrated driver conversation. But and then he and then he got handed the mic after the race for the podium interview, and he decided to make his opening line. Esty Bestie is on the podium. He literally called himself Esty Bestie, (laughs) which is a nickname that Matt Gallagher and Tom Bellingham gave him no thank you unsubscribe will completely unsubscribe to me that washed away any credibility he could have possibly gained by his race performance just a lack of awareness of just how stupid that sounds <laughs> if only Done. if only dead, dead to me if only me. he knew how close he was to getting in your good graces i'm sure he would have reconsidered esty bestie esty rhymes with testy what are we talking about? What <laughs> What are we talking about? I, I just, I'm sorry. It ruined it for me. I just had, to, I know we haven't talked about the race yet, but I just, I, I just was disgusted by that. <laughs> I, I genuinely was. I I, tu- I I turned my broadcast off when he said it. I turned it off. I couldn't do it. I don't even know how to respond to that. That was not the thing that I was <laughs> expecting would have created such a fire. 
Uh, like wow. hi, some, somebody needs to hire this man a publicist. Like I, I, I'll, I'll start a GoFundMe for an Esteban Ocon publicist. I think he's just been so generally unrecognized on the grid that he's never he's never been in, in a position where he's needed to sort of pre-filter what he's said because nobody's really nobody's really capturing it anyway. I don't know. Wow. Anything else you'd like to get off your chest there? No, I couldn't hold that one inside very much longer. So thank you for letting me. I just, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you deluded yourself into thinking that you were even close to giving Ocon any praise whatsoever. So I just feel like this is a, a rationalization as to why you can maintain your long held hatred. Dude, Esty Bestie sounds like something you would name something that you made in a -A Build-A-Bear workshop. Like, (laughs) like... You know, like it's a doll that you you stuffed a little heart into and then sewed up, you know, and walked out into the mall. That's what Esty Vesty sounds like. What a he's, stupid effing nickname. Are you kidding me? He's got, like, he's got that stitched I into his a, favorite blankie. Listen, I am a 5'9 redhead who has been undersized and had big ass glasses for most of my life. I know what bad, bad nicknames sound like. I know what they sound like. <laughs> Okay, I've I've heard them all, and that's a bad nickname. So in reality, this is just what PTSD looks like. I, I honestly, I you haven't when I sat down tonight, Gerald. I didn't think to myself, "Oh, Graham, all your trauma is going to boil to the surface tonight." <laughs> I didn't, you know. I, I, I maybe it's the wine talking. I I don't know. I just but let's move on. <laughs> I want you to know you're in a safe place with people who care about you. Don't you. give a shit about me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't give a shit about me. Well. <laughs> Since we're dwelling so much on qualifying, I might as well make another couple notes. We'll see how these things set you off. Once again, (laughs) Yuki, Q3. I mean, very consistent in qualifying. Unfortunately, yet again, dropping down the grid. At least this time, it was not off of the start. um, And and at least happened at least halfway through the race. Um, McLaren, 10 and 11. You know, pretty high up the order. And then DeVries, the big surprise in the hot seat. He is starting the race in 12th place. And then while his teammate all the way up the grid in second place, Mr. Lance Stroll qualifying 14th. And I will just note, there was an article after this last weekend, planet F1 talking about, well, you know, how long can this go on? Is, is daddy Stroll going to have to make a hard decision and I will just know we raised that question um, after the last race. We'll get back to that with Aston Martin. And at what point do they need to pull the ripcord if uh, if the disparity continues to be that large between the two drivers? I mean, ultimately, the question's going to boil down to. So the answer is no. He's not going to fire his son. But no matter what, he may be willing. He he may be willing to kill his son and cover it up, you know. Like I'm 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 from South Carolina, and everybody, you know, the Murdoch, you know, scandal. It's like there's some people out there, Gerald, that are crazy enough to feel like firing their son publicly is somehow worse than killing them privately and covering it up. I'm just saying, like, there are people out there who think this way. What has happened? I am now. You're right. We have totally <laughs> inverted roles. I'm worried now because. It's okay for me. I'm gonna to... get a sued for yeah. <laughs> for what? Go on. Uh, what I'm specific charge? For... <laughs> Never mind. 
some sort of slander libel. He's not going to fire his son. I know. Okay. I, I, I agreed with everything you just said, but the reality sets in quickly after you say that, which is he's not going to fire his son. Like, you don't think there's any reality. What happens when why he's in the sport, but he's actually shown we were legitimately praising him earlier this season and he had good performances. So look, that's not to say this lack of form is going to continue. But if we look at the constructor championship series right now, they sit one point ahead of Mercedes. They sit just 30 points ahead of Ferrari. If at some point they lose the position to Mercedes, which could very well be next week, they start to slide closer to Ferrari. They see themselves dropping from what, what, what they could have had in second place down to fourth. You don't think that there's going to be any kind of pressure? Or you think, no, because the well, pressure yeah, would come yeah. from, from Stroll himself, and so therefore if you, it's non-existent. If you define pre- pressure as people being willing to speculate about it, yeah, there's going to be a ton of pressure. But like, I don't think it's going to make a damn bit of difference because Lawrence Stroll doesn't answer to anyone on this except himself. So he's not going to give a shit. Don't you think he's shown himself to be a, a shrewd business person to date? I think he's shown himself to be a pretty vain, petty, ego-driven person. And that tells me he probably is going to stay blindly loyal to his son. I would be willing to bet on that more than on him being a shrewd business person who wants to do whatever it takes to win, and that's it. If he was that way, Gerald, he would have asked Vettel to stay and brought in Alonzo and sent his son Mm. backing before the season started. Then, I mean, come on. Yeah, and then Can you imagine two? the possibility of having Vettel and Alonso in the same driver lineup? He could have done it. Assuming Vettel wanted to stay, but yes. Well, I mean, and, dude. And conspiratorially, you could say maybe the money isn't as important. They've gotten the funding they've needed to date. What they could really continue to benefit from is some extra wind tunnel time and and modeling time by sitting in fourth place. So Maybe he's sitting there looking at it like not the worst thing in the world to get some extra use out of this brand new wind tunnel. Stroll is one of those guys where when you look at his driving record, you're like, yeah, you seem like you would be great in a simulator. Like that's, you know, like take away the real world consequences. And I think you'd probably be a phenomenal data gatherer. You know, he's like. He's like Brian Hoyer, you know, like. Never, ever wanted you to actually start the whole season, you know? But you're a great scout team quarterback. You're going to rep the defense really hard. You're going to be great in practice, you know? But you're not the guy. Well, that's where, to your point, he's got the general pace at a lot of times, but he doesn't have the precision. He doesn't have the decision-making. He kind of seems to lack some of the, the common sense in the moment, as you saw in this race. And so... I do think that that is probably a healthier position and it's, go- it's gotta be, it's gotta happen at some point, right? I mean, he's going to con- transition into this reserve driver role. He'll be the simulator guy, start to get involved in more on the business side. And at the end of the day, that's more of the enduring and let's be honest, probably profitable position to be in anyway. The question being how long does father stroll allow the team to slide in the order before he, makes the inevitable decision. 
I don't know. And you don't, Sorry, and, I keep distracting us before we get into the race. And you don't think it's going to be this I, I season, huh? No. I would, I would be willing to bet a pretty decent chunk of money on that. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, look, this is organic. This is just stream of consciousness this weekend. Trying something, something new. All right. Have we covered qualifying and parts of the race uh, sufficiently? Should we talk about the race right. itself? So. All right. So take it away, maestro. So as we mentioned, finished largely how it started, at least for the top three, Verstappen, Alonso, and Ocon. Meanwhile, we said Stroll finished, uh, started down in 14th. Meanwhile, he didn't even finish the race. While, and while Ferrari uh, qualified reasonably well, their strategy blunders opened the door for Mercedes, starting with the signs early pit, and then they were from hards, and then they were late to inters. Uh, and then, but off track, or I guess on track, but outside of the race finishing, this was a, a weekend of big floor reveals. You had the the Red Bull with Perez's crash, Aston Martin from Stroll, and Mercedes from Hamilton. Now, let's be honest. We don't have any idea how to interpret what we were looking at in those photographs in comparing the different cars' undersides. But at least my hope is other teams can make sense of it and will lead to some positive developments. But any takeaway from kind of the overall uh, race crashes this weekend? The fact that we started out with a partial rain race with some drama coming from the pit strategy and more overtakes. Did you find this weekend to be a little bit more exciting maybe than, than others? It was definitely more exciting than expected and better than the Monaco baseline, mm. which was a pleasant surprise. It given the variable, I mean, we haven't seen rain descend in the middle of a race like that since what Russia two, three years ago, three years ago when Lando got caught out in like the last kind of quarter of the race. Mm. Um, it could have been way more chaotic. Like that is one of those races that could have had three red flags and it would have been understandable in the last like 20 laps. So if you look at it, you know, it's actually kind of miraculous that it was never red, red flagged. Um, and I think in general, my whole takeaway was, yeah, more entertaining than expected. And also, you know, we've talked about this already, I think, before the show, but like the rain separates the men from the boys. And I, I kind of enjoy witnessing that as a litmus test for drivers. So. so what does that mean then in terms of your take on different drivers, right? So you had the top three driving a pretty clean race. What, the likes of Sainz, Perez, Russell? sort of making larger yeah. mistakes on track. I mean, you, you think that yeah. you think that classifies them in a, in a different category? I mean, on, on weekends like this, it, it's hard to kind of see around that. Um, Hamilton didn't make any mistakes either. You know, he was relatively consistent given where he was in position on the track, didn't do anything overly stupid like Russell. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to deny the fact that the top drivers of the top three teams, top four teams, were all relatively faultless. And the second drivers of the top four teams were very much not. And everybody kind of debates whether there should be this first driver, second driver dynamic. But weekends like this are what prove, you know, or why there should be. I mean, Signs had no business running up into the back of Ocon going into that chicane. There was no space to overtake. 
He was trying to be aggressive and make Ocon make a mistake, and he just completely overshot it on a dry track. Inexcusable. Stroll tried to overtake somebody around the hairpin turn. Like, that's literally never been done since, like, 1995. Like, David Coulthard on the broadcast was like, you can try to do that, but I, like, don't know that I've ever seen it done ever, but, like, good on you, I guess. Perez, you know, like, not everything that happened to him on track was his fault, but he did run into the back of Hulkenberg pretty poorly. Like, and then, you know, um, who was the other one that we forgot? Uh, Signs. Oh, no, we already mentioned Signs. Uh, Stroll. Well, that kind of speaks for itself. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's kind of my takeaway is, like, the top four drivers of the top four teams performed in the rain as a class driver would expect to be expected to. The second drivers did not. Hmm. And it's unfortunate because Russell really, you know, the mistakes weren't massive, but they were they were enough. Despite, they compounded. They did well, and and I think and, again, I was surprised. Similarly, there wasn't more more carnage on the track, given given when it came in and the intensity of the rain. Um, but given, as you mentioned, all of the cars running in the back of each other, lots of front wing parts strewn across the track. The thing I was most happy to see was the fact that there were no. Uh, safety cars thrown out. Amen. They, you know, they Amen. had their yellow flags momentarily as drivers went long. They were allowed to have some parts of their car fly off into the walls, but they kept the race going. Uh, and so I, you have to commend the the stewards for for the lack of decisions uh, to, to throw a, a safety car in this race. So that definitely improved the quality and let the race truly like mature. And honestly, with some of the later collisions, I think they were probably worried of what would happen if you threw a, a safety car and then tried to start it in those conditions. So I think they were trying to avoid what, what had happened earlier in the season as well. Yeah, I mean, if they'd have red flagged it at the end, they'd had to do a rolling start in the rain. There's no way they could have done a standing start. I mean, it would have been a total cluster. Exactly. Um, and then they would have had the track drying kind of during the red flag. And there would have been a debate about which tires you start on. And like, I mean, that that's, yeah, uh, I totally, I could not agree with you more. I was super happy to let them play. All right. So with the, with the sort of big headlines covered, let's dive into the individual teams. Now, Red Bull, strong weekend for Verstappen. We already talked about his qualifying performance, pretty untouchable in the race as well, took the medium tires an impressively long duration to get into basically into the rain. Uh, meanwhile, Perez was basically irrelevant uh, after Q1 exit hitting the wall. Um, however, I have to make an int- uh, uh, kind of a funny comment because, you know, we talk a lot about the Monaco GP being being boring and, you know, we had our fake commercial that we we decided to cut about Monaco GP being a sleep aid. But because I was so tired after that trek on Sunday, I only made it through to about lap 25 when I got home and I watched the race. And I woke up sometime after that. And what I saw was like the podium ceremony with Perez, Verstappen, and Alonso on the podium. And I was like, oh shit, I can't, like, I don't I have no idea what happened. Like, turned it off. And I was like, I got to come back to that later because that seems crazy. How did he do it? So the entire race, I'm sitting here lap after lap wondering, like, what the hell happens? How does Perez come all the way back <laughs> and get into first place? And what had happened was, was I, the Miami podium. what I had ha- slept so long. It was, I had made it all the way back through the Baku race. And so it was the Baku <laughs> podium ceremony with like Perez <laughs> <Yeah, Baku. laughs> finishing like nine seconds ahead. So, 
Um, that would have that would have tripped me. Well, you had a more exciting race than anybody. Exactly, there. that was you the know? most exciting. Shrouded in mystery. <laughs> the most yeah. exciting Monaco Grand Prix was me expecting somebody to come from eight, you know, fifteenth up to first in the last five laps. So uh, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. But this is this is when I know you're watching on delay. I'm gonna start texting you subliminal messages by accident to try and to try and f with you. This is this is great, <laughs> dude. I was. I was so confused, and then I, it dawned upon me with about eight laps left. I'm like, I don't think he's going to do it. Um, so, but with that, um, really, so this was Perez's second qualifying in seven races where he DNF'd. Do you think this is just bad luck, or is this a an enduring trend? You think, and and this is sort of. Uh, a measurement of of who he is as a driver being expected to push it now, especially improving his qualifying pace, to try to keep pace with Verstappen. And unfortunately he just doesn't have the precision. What's your, what's your takeaways? Uh, my takeaway is there, it's nothing that we didn't already know. I mean, I don't think before this weekend, either of us were willing to support an argument for Perez being able to touch max over the length of the season. Uh, for the drivers' championship, and so weekends like this are why that is, you know, because it comes down to the death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, can Perez beat him on the right track on a on one weekend? Yes. Can he show up and do it and grind every condition, every track, every weekend? Yeah, weekends like this are make you say, yeah, probably not, definitely not, and. So no, I don't think this is an indictment on him or his role as a second driver. It's just a reinforcement of his role as a second driver and kind of what we already all knew to be true. Um, so I'm not worried about Perez. I don't think his seat at Red Bull is in question. Everybody's entitled to a couple bad weekends, but he's not Max Verstappen. Um, so. Yeah, totally agree. I mean... I guess for me, I would like to at least see him crash in Q3, right? And make the mistake while he's pushing as hard as Verstappen is you know, trying to chase a pole, not lap two of Q1. That, that seems a little a little, little early to be exiting. So I was surprised with just, I guess, how poor uh, the weekend went for him. Uh, let's turn to Aston Martin. We've talked about them a little bit, but again, Alonso starting and finishing in second. Meanwhile, Stroll... DNF from near back of the grid on lap 53, albeit in the rain. Now Alonso is just 12 points off of Perez for second in the world driver championship. And as I mentioned before, Aston Martin, just one point clear of Mercedes and 30 points clear of Ferrari. And my point, as I made before was, I don't know how many more weekends Aston Martin can take like this one. Otherwise, very quickly, they will be relegated to barely ahead of Alpine, which, as you'd be the first to say, is a embarrassing and shameful position to be in. I kind of hope it happens because that would be the most entertaining storyline possible mm. is for Hernando to be second in the world driver's rankings and Aston to be fifth in the drivers. That, or fourth, rather, that would be nuts. Um, that would be worse than like the the gap between Ricardo and Norris, um, and far so more consequential. I kind of hope for far it. more consequential. I couldn't 
be cheering so much for one driver on a team and so against the other one. Like, <laughs> I'd love Alonzo. I really do, man. Like, he is just so, like, his team radio is awesome. Like, he's just so in tune with everything that's happening. He doesn't get flustered. He just doesn't make mistakes. I mean, the guy's literally been on the podium every week except one. Like, that is crazy. Like, Botas wasn't even doing that at Mercedes when he was clearly in the best car. So, yeah, I don't know. I, we've, I don't know how much there is more to cover really on Aston, but I just, to me, honestly, it's hard to even consider them one team. Like, I'd kind of like to think of them as, like, a team Alonzo and a team Stroll and just separate out my feelings towards each, if I could have it both ways. Well, in terms of those two separate teams, while Fernando's sitting third in driver standing, Stroll is down in a fourth place team as the second driver sitting eighth. And he is well off of Leclerc, who has 42 points. Stroll has 27. He's actually closer to Esteban with 21. So, I mean, he's, he's right there. Art, Alonso needs to like secede from the union here. Like I, he needs to, he needs to figure out like how to launch an independent team at this point. I think it could get that bad. One man, he's a one man, to one car team. Uh, you know, maybe Kamoa can put up some money. You know, they seem to be flush with cash. Well, what that? Let's turn to Mercedes. They finished fourth and fifth, right in line with one another, while qualifying sixth and eighth. Uh, and and I think the big news for Mercedes this weekend was big upgrades, both on their side pods and their front suspension, albeit with no new chassis, all being retrofitted to the old chassis. But back to the side pods, showing a, a much more similar design to the rest of the field now with the wider side pods, a little bit of the, I don't know if you'll call it the bathtub or the water slide or what have you, but much more akin to a Ferrari or an Alpine Aston Martin now. So much as it pains me to, to ask this question, I guess is at this point, is it, uh, is it safe to say that the jet fighter inspired zero side pod design is finally dead and, and how happy are you to never have to talk about that again? I have never been so happy to see something shot out of the sky. Probably not since the Chinese spy balloon. Uh, I am so happy to not talk about F-15s anymore. Uh, honestly, I don't even think that the inspiration thing about the fighter jets was even true. I think you made it up from the beginning. Uh, it's just the domain of my existence. So uh, it, uh, only second to the conversations about Lance Stroll's wrists. So. Uh, yeah, this is one I'm I am I broke the pieces apart. I put them in a fire in the middle of the room and I'm dancing around it. I could it could not be happier. Um side pods overrated, severely overrated as just a concept. Well, and as committed as Mercedes seemed to be to the concept at the start of the season, I think they made the decision to pivot faster than Biden did to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon. So credit for them for acknowledging when they made a mistake. There he is. There he is. There he is. He's been hiding, but he's still in there. Uh, yeah. Look, I my general takeaway on Mercedes is they kind of got effed by the Imola flood. Monaco's not the track you ever want to introduce a bunch of upgrades to. They basically introduced a B-spec car, new floor, 
new diffuser, new side pods, like the whole concept, new, they went from what, push rod to pull rod, like new suspensions, like everything's different. It's a totally different car. Um, yeah, you would never introduce that in Monaco because you're unlikely to learn the things you need to learn. So, you know, my, my takeaways for them is like great weekend, all things considered relative, you know, qualifying position relative to finishing position. They, to your point, have Ferrari to thank for that. Um, we're going to see next weekend what their new car is really made of. And I, I, I'm a little skeptical, if I'm honest. But uh, Skeptic. Happy the side pods are gone. Yeah. Well, so turning to – so agree, and I think the the that's the similar story for a lot of the teams, right? Like Alpine as well. They made a lot of improvements. It seemed to work, but who's to say that what happened there carries over and Barcelona should be a good – good test of that is the historic sort of well-rounded test track. Uh, can we zoom in on, uh, you put a comment in the show notes here on Russell's request to swap cars. Can we, can, can we just go in on that for a second? Can you, you want to lead us off? Yeah. I mean, look, we got, we have, we have, uh, who was it? Hamilton was chasing signs was like what a second and a half off. And Russell sort of like approaching Hamilton, nipping at his heels and basically asking, can we can we swap places? Can we swap places? Uh, and I, as I was watching that, I was just dying to know what your what your thought process and, and reaction was to to Russell's comments. I've been I've been trying to curse less on this show because, mm. you know, kid show. Uh, it's what a baby back bitch. What a bitch. Like what a huge, massive bitch move that was i'm sorry like i'm i i am somewhat protective of russell because i think some of his like boyish tactics get excused by his just raw performance but that was like too far like come on bro like you're not even in his like you're not even on his tailpipe and you're asking to trade positions in the fucking rain like to try and overtake somebody at monaco like Get out of here. I've, ugh. Yeah, the en- the entire scenario was a bit delusional. Uh, so I- I'm glad you had that strongly held opinion. Hamilton should be allowed to, like, sleep his gr- with his girlfriend, you know, a- as retribution for that. Like, that... <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, first off, this show is labeled as explicit in, the, <laughs> in all of, like, the podcasting platform so um i hope any kids are not listening hey actually question did did you see that uh twitter picture of lewis after the race like with his shirt off like all tatted up like did you see that went viral i did not you know what i'm talking no. about oh i kind of thought he might be taking a subliminal shot at george for all of his shirtless instagram pictures you know showing him what a real man uh, looks like I mean, kind of you know lewis is like definitely more built and like he's got some some great ink and George looks like a choir boy, you know, <laughs> like it looks like he's uh, on the JV football team. He's like, getting, sli- he's like getting ready man. for weigh in. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So classic Ferrari weekend, uh, a mix of varied blunders leading to continued disappointment. Leclerc looked like he might snag pole only to qualify third then slipped down a, with a three-place grid penalty for impeding Norris. How, how horrendous was the impeding by Leclerc? And, and 
to whom do you attribute fault? I, I actually don't have a great recollection for that as how this happened on track. Can you give me like the play-by-play real quick? Yeah, so basically I think this was like the last lap sequence, right? And Leclerc had put up a good time into pole before Alonzo and Verstappen had had the chance to, to put up times. And I think there's a driver cam of him like pounding the wheel. And I think that had to be right as he's going into that corner, into the tunnel, he's like pounding his steering wheel. I presume at that point, because he learned he's lost pole position and slipped down into third place. So he's going into the tunnel with that like mindset, most likely. And then instead of sort of sitting on the outside of the corner, he is basically like parked in the middle of the track and Norris like has nowhere to go. You see him like, like, should I go outside inside and ends up having to just like slam on his brakes. And it's tough to tell based on the driver radio and the little bit of the delay when it actually came through that, that his engineer had said, all right, you got Norris coming behind, right? Like the lay makes it seem like it was like momentarily before, which I think is probably not the case. Um, the part of me just wonders was Leclerc out of the zone because of, of, you know, he was thinking about something else and didn't realize like, shit, I'm kind of in like a pretty vulnerable spot here. But also I'm, I'm quick to also place blame on the Ferrari engineering team just as poorly as they have performed time in and time out. So I'm sure there's equal parts blame to, to go either way. On a track that he knows intimately that's inside of a city that he was born in my default is kind of like, yeah, you should probably know where the racing line is, bud. Like, you know, I don't know. I hard to pin that one on the engineer, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think he was probably a little a little caught up in the uh, the moments and his crushed aspirations. Speaking of Ferrari racing engineers, you know what I finally had determined this weekend? What's that? I I am always going to assume the worst of Ferrari strategy until they change their race engineers because Marcos Padros sounds like an absolute dumbass on the radio. Like if you listen to GP or Bono or I'll, I'll even take freaking um, uh, the guy that was mix engineer at Haas, who's now Hulkenberg's engineer, who sounds like Mr. Rogers, yeah, he's like a kindergarten teacher. Like, yeah, dude, I'll take that guy. Like, but dude, Marcos Pedros sounds like he is just dazed and confused the entire time. Like, he doesn't sound sure of himself when he says anything. Like, I oh god, it's cringy. It's cringy. Well, there's just that, like the nope, stay out, stay out. Like that echoes in my head. Well, there's just a complete lack of like situational awareness and anticipation. And yeah. and it's always like for especially for Leclerc's race engineer, it's always they're checking. They're checking. We're like, well, put me on the fucking radio with whoever you're checking with. Like, let me talk to them and just cut out this middleman because they never has any answers. You you know what Ferrari needs to do? The best thing that Vasseur could do is bring in two brutally freaking rational German race engineers. Like just gruff, just matter of fact, no emotion, cold heart assassin. Will tell a driver to go f themselves if they have to. They need to find two race engineers who are like literally the antithesis of the Ferrari pers- like aura. 
That's that's what I would do. Well, yeah, and they need to run the race, right? And let the driver drive yeah. and run the race because once again, you saw a situation where, you know, so we talked about Leclerc, right? His his issues all happened largely in, in qualifying while the blunders were um, courtesy of signs during the race where, you know, they start the race on hards. It seems like a good strategy to go long. There's, there's rain potential, you know, so you could switch right into inters or wets. But instead, they decide to go with this very conservative strategy to to prevent an undercut from Hamilton, to which Sainz is skeptical. He wants to stay out. He's confused by the decision. And then you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe later in the race, he pushes for staying out longer on the slicks. Yep. You're right. So he doesn't have a, a strong hand there guiding him in the strategic decision making. And so he pushes to stay out longer, which ultimately costs him as well for, for coming in a, a, basically a lap late. So, I mean, again, by not having that clear decision-making and somebody that they trust, they're caught in this middle ground of, do I trust you or do I force a, a certain decision? So I, I totally agree with you. It, it seems like they've cleaned up some other issues, but parts of strategy and just that race engineer dynamic sounds terrible on the radio. It, it, it couldn't be more opposite to GP Max. Like when Max was basically telling them, like midway through the race, these mediums are literally about to explode. Like I can't drive this car anymore. And GP was like, basically, you know, I, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he basically just in complete calm collected, but it's a very sure of himself tone comes on. He's like, we can't pit because we'll lose, you know, whatever rain's coming. We're concerned about track position. I'm sure you understand. Yep. Basically was his sign off, which is basically his way of saying, we know what we're doing. We hear Strive you drive the fucking like, car keep driving you asshole yeah like they like it's just the total opposite of ferrari and the like the pit walls in charge max is free to express his opinions and his grievances and his input is valued but at the end of the day like he can't overrule them he can't well and you notice like, when it's, it's unprompted right like max will yeah. max will offer a lot of perspectives unprompted and many of those go ignored but there are a lot of times yeah. where they ask him you know, about conditions, about the car. And then yep. they, that you can tell that they take those perspectives into consideration and that impacts the strategy. But a lot of his unprompted stuff is sort of thrown by the wayside. And it's sort of that like emotional management role that GP has to, has to play. They ask him about tire wear and balance, like pretty frequently early on in races. And he gives his opinion about which, you know, front left, front right, like, and it, like so, you're you're right. They do strike the balance of being firm when they need to and being collaborative when they need to, and it's just like. Yeah, but they know where like, they know where they need input. They know how that input's going to influence their decision. But then they know yeah. they know they have a clear strategy that they're sticking to, and then it's just coaching the driver to deliver on that accordingly. Yeah, it's just totally different approaches. With I don't know, we don't really know what the fuck we're doing, but that's a good thought. We'll check on that for you. Yeah. Maybe we'll Meanwhile, Marcos Padros is throwing overcooked spaghetti at the wall and just hoping something sticks. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. That's the most offensive thing that you've said about Ferrari yet. How dare you? You fucking heathen. You can talk about anything else, but don't talk about the pasta. Uh, so um, early season, we predicted, I don't even remember what number over under we predicted of, of strategy failures, but... Pretty safe to say we could chalk this weekend up to a strategy failure. Yep, I think that's all right. I think we'll that's count right. it. Yep. 
and let's move on. We only cover a couple more teams in detail. I'm thinking Alpine, uh, just to grind your gears a bit more. And then AlphaTari, I think, is deserving of some mention again. But Alpine, Ocon, fourth, touched pole for, for just a moment, finished third. Uh, and that's his third career podium. Meanwhile, Gasly held court, qualified seventh, finished seventh. And and now they have double uh, McLaren's points. So Alpine sitting fourth, or I'm sorry, fifth in constructors with 35, McLaren at 17. Uh, so that gap now will continue to widen, especially if these both these drivers get double points finishes, which has, has been the rarity, much to my surprise, this season. I, I predicted them being in this sort of think I had them fourth, not expecting Aston to be where they were, but the surprise Aston aside right there behind a, a Ferrari. And this comes on the heels of a lot of scrutiny for the early performance of the season by their CEO, criticizing them for not delivering up to expectations. And I guess I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do you think that one, this race was enough to kind of glean the performance for future races or similarly, do we think we have to wait for Barcelona? and? And do you think that criticism was was a bit too early and you needed to let them have a, a clean weekend finish without crashes or without mechanical failures to actually see the pace that they had? And, and you know, do you think that maybe criticism was warranted and motivating or do you think that was indicative of, of some some cultural issues at the team? I, first off, let me just say I'm sick of talking about this Rossi criticism. I don't give a shit. This is hardly the first time somebody's boss has talked shit about them. So, like, can we just I, – I just want to move on from that. The, the, the talking point here is Ocon. Credit where it's due. I'll be honest. During qualifying, I thought he was on pole. I didn't appreciate as qualifying was unfolding the continued pace of track evolution. When he put that lap in, I thought he was going to be on pole. I really did. And I was, like, pretty shocked by it. Um the he's no matter how you slice the data, he significantly outperformed that car in that single lap, and he deserves credit for that. He does, wow. and then he deserves credit for showing up and not making a mistake. There was not a lap of that race he did not have somebody on his within a second and a half of him. Not a single lap. Varied conditions didn't go wide, didn't spin out, didn't hit a wall, didn't brush a wall. Like, yeah. That's great. He deserves all the credit in the world for this weekend. Now, am I going to take that and extend it forward and call him the most underrated driver on the grid? Absolutely not. And I cannot wait, literally in three days, at Barcelona for Alpine to be a victim of their now overinflated expectations of themselves. Isn't it crazy how quickly that car went from a straight-line rocket ship to, like, dominant in slow-speed corners? I don't trust them. The car doesn't have an identity. First it's this, then it's this. I I don't trust them. I don't trust them at all. I I think this is a flash in the pan weekend. Again, I don't want to take anything away from Ocon, but like I'm not I'm I'm not crowning them. I refuse to. I feel like you're just extrapolating your general distrust for the French into the uncertainty about the the car's performance. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but props to Ocon. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard race, especially when you're sitting there with two podiums and you're thinking, wow, this could be my my third one. I just have to not fuck up. And, you, and you're thinking about that for, you know, 70 plus laps. Uh, do, that's that's a lot of ever, pressure. Do you ever look at him and just wonder, how the hell does he fit in the car? 
it really like it confounds me. He's super tall, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got to be a tight fit. Can't be comfortable. Well, no. and I think you're quick to dismiss the whole uh, the whole Rossi conversation just be, again because I think you probably you're relating that too much to your own personal experiences and how much a boss might talk shit about one of their subordinates. Um, but I, I think if you were looking for an indication of an unhealthy boss, I do think a public smearing early in a season when the car, the team hasn't even put together like a really great race weekend. It just shows, I, I think that short sightedness, the lack of judgment, the, the lack of maturity, honestly, in terms of how you present yourself and the team, right? Like you're going to see Toto and Christian talk about, you know, deficiencies in a car and maybe where they're falling short, but nobody's outright here shitting on the people that are working for them and the team. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who feel hostility and I don't know any of these people, right? Personally, or, or any of the real facts on the ground to draw any conclusion, but that was pretty much a validating perspective uh, or, or insight into, yeah, probably not the healthiest of, of bosses. So we'll, uh, we'll see how that progresses. So let's talk about AlphaTauri and then we'll jump to a, an off track topic, but AlphaTauri finally for me, this weekend was one where a lot shook out and aligned with probably my preseason predictions with Alpines further up the grid, as well as AlphaTauri, Hit it in a battle with McLaren, if not sitting ahead of them up until at least when the range struck. So Sonoda in Q3, once again, qualifying ninth, DeVries in 12th. Sonoda looked good all the way up until that rain came. Seemed to have braking issues throughout the weekend. Terrible in race once the rain was there and ultimately fell down the grid. That was like half of the passes in the race were McLaren passing him on track and then him subsequently going long in a corner and losing additional positions. But if your framework is to hold true, the rain separating the boys from the men, obviously easier further down the grid with less to lose, but DeVries showing up this weekend, putting in a quality performance and while falling just short of, of a points position, uh, he did ultimately finish where he started in 12th place. So a lot of scrutiny of him going into this weekend. Marco saying he needs to have a better performance. Do you think he delivered up to some reasonable expectations this week? Yeah, uh, he needed it for sure. And it was definitely overdue. I think my general response is like, keep it up, you know, Um Sonoda got caught out a few times, kind of had one of those just kind of series of unfortunate events just compound on another. It happens from time to time. I'm not really concerned about him, but yeah, DeVries needed a, a mistake-free weekend. And he got one, so credit to him. Uh, it, it doesn't – I don't know how much it changes in terms of my like outlook on his like seat. He's got to do far more than that. But He has um, to do that every weekend now. start somewhere. But yeah, this is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, this is the start of the rest of his season, so we'll um, we'll see yeah. if he can keep it up. All right, so before the race, probably the biggest news to come out was Aston Martin, as we look ahead to 2026 and the rule changes, they are planning on leaving Mercedes as an engine supplier and partnering with the team that was in and then out and then in and then out over and over. Honda partnering with Aston Martin 
under the new regulations. Give me your reactions. What's your what's your thoughts on this partnership? Do you think it'll be fruitful or is it worth the risk at this point in time, given, you know, they're sitting in second place and and seem to be on top of the world? I think it's a good decision for Aston Martin. Um, if they want to take themselves seriously and for people to take them seriously as like a top a perennial top four constructor, you know, they don't have to be an OEM, but practically Red Bull has been an OEM through Honda because Honda is a dedicated engine supplier, you know, which means that they get preferential treatment in terms of the integration of power unit to everything else. Uh, you know, whereas like McLaren as a customer team and Mercedes may not enjoy the same luxuries when Mercedes is also serving Williams and Aston. Right. So, um, I think strategically it's a good move for Aston Martin because Honda is available. It's ridiculous that Honda has done this and it's unfortunate that Red Bull, if we could revisionist history, this and Honda had never decided to pull out. I don't think Red Bull would be building a powertrain unit. I think Christian Horner said that pretty directly. So I don't know that Red Bull will be worse off once the dust settles, especially now they've got Ford in the equation. But like, what a weird game of dominoes that Honda has set off purely because they had one board of directors that decided one thing and then the whole board got replaced and they just decided another thing. It's like, you know, it's it's like it's like somebody in another country dealing with U.S. foreign policy and like a president for having a year worth of policy and then he gets ejected from office and everything gets reversed a year later. Like it's like, how can I do business with you? Like it's it's weird. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, and but, I wonder how much of it goes to the sport, to the sort of macroeconomic circumstances at the time, right? COVID, et cetera, to you know, part of me wonders how much of it factored into that idea of like the changing industry dynamics of like, there's a, such a strong fixation on electric when in reality, maybe it's hybrid and synthetic fuels. I would have thought that they were further ahead of the curve and looking at those trends to know like, yeah, maybe this whole continued hybrid synthetic fuels really is the way. And we're going to continue to invest in that rather than sort of pull out with the electric focus. But yeah, I mean, it's a, an interesting case study in corporate decision-making, but at least for them, they seem to have picked a partner that's pretty high up the grid. And so, again, I, I think it's a quick road to prosperity again for them versus partnering with a with another team. Um, I guess from this as a, a decision-making from an Aston Martin perspective, though, what do you think is kind of the most critical driver there? Is it just the fact that, you know, you don't have mission alignment with your engine supplier who's obviously trying to beat you to, you know, there's been this talk of preferential engines, although it seems like that's been mitigated in recent years, but access to the data, the integration of components, like how do you look at that, that sort of decision-making criteria and what's most important to the team? Access to data and integration, I think go hand in hand because at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, the chassis has to be built around the engine and then the arrow has to be built around the chassis. So if I don't have full control and predictability over the dimensions of the engine earlier on in its development, it's going to be hard for me to build a chassis. Like there's a very clear and objective benefit to having more control over the design of the engine. And when you don't own the engine or you're not the exclusive user of said engine, you lack that control 
that influences, I think, some flexibility you have and the ability to long-term plan card as a strategic card design. So, um, yeah, I think on that alone, it's a good strategic decision if the partner you're going with builds a good engine. Honda's built a great engine. So, you know, I get that the regulations are changing and it's going to be, uh, in 2026, that engine's going to be more heavily hybrid-powered on a relative basis uh, than even it is today, but I don't, you know, it's not like a complete change. It's not like they're going all electric or going completely non-hybrid. Yeah, it's still well within their wheelhouse. Yeah, I think it's pretty adjacent. So, I, yeah. Yeah, and I I have to respect the the boldness of Aston Martin, right? And I think it it creates an interesting contrast for a team that were they were side by side with in la, you know prior season, which was McLaren, right? I mean to to see the strides that they've made, the investments that they've made, both in infrastructure and people, and now partnerships. I mean, that's how you sort of would expect to see a a true sort of transformational effort within a company versus McLaren's basically changed a few people and, and made a small targeted investment in infrastructure. And that's the extent of it. And so again, I think an interesting sort of case study contrast between those two and, and look, there's arguably more risk on the, the cultural working integration, right? That was kind of the, the criticism you saw with McLaren and Honda, but that seems to have fixed been fixed with Red Bull Honda and I would expect that having brought people over from Red Bull, they've they've similarly learned that lesson as well and and will probably mitigate that that risk as well. So yeah, I, I would expect it Great. to be good for them. Um all right. Well, let's close out with um some personal podium DNF of the week, and then we'll briefly touch on the race weekend starting tomorrow, Barcelona. But personal podium, who do you give it to this weekend? Do it. You know you want to. Ocon. Wow. Here, here. Yeah. You're a big. Yeah. It's hard to deny him. Um, I'm going to say Ocon. Mm. I'm just going to say Ocon. You know what? I'm going to leave him there on his own. Let him have his moment. Boom. Nice job. I mean, yeah, Ocon as well. I, I think he was the true, unique standout in the crowd this weekend. Others had a couple of high points, but but he was really the the star. All right, agreement there. Now let's turn to DNF of the week. Who do you have? Ocon during the post race interview. <laughs> Should have been. Oh, and uh, honestly, my honest answer is Carlos Sainz because he made the dumbest mistake when he had the most to lose. Mm. Yep. For no fucking reason. And and the obvious one then is I got to give it to Perez. I mean, just too early in the weekend to be doing dumb shit. And especially on a track where there's there's no way to save it. Once again, you have a car where you don't need to get all of it to be in Q3. Like, come on, man. Do the easy yep. work. All right. Looking ahead to I knew you couldn't just give Ocon his moment. You had to shit on him somehow. All right, looking ahead to Barcelona. Last year, finishing Verstappen, Perez, Ham, uh, Russell, I believe. Uh, Signs recovered from 11th a- after a spin to finish fourth. Hamilton climbed from fifth to 19th after a puncture. And Leclerc lost pole from DNF. And the big news this race was this was the race in which Verstappen and Red Bull 
took the championship leads away from Leclerc and Ferrari to that earlier preseason prediction of will they surpass their performance from last year? It seemingly is an obvious yes, as they are clear and above any other team at the present moment. And let's just say that race was a damn exciting relative to the, the typical Monaco GP, especially I think it was last year, right? Where Perez was sort of limping out in front for a prolonged period of time. So, um, should be a good one. The big difference this time being they remove the final chicane, increasing the overall track speed, probably benefiting cars that are better in high speed corners. And this has typically been used as a track testing track, pretty well rounded. And as we said, should be a good indicator for the rest of the season where some of those early improvements from the likes of Alpine Mercedes will lead them through the rest of the year. Any expectations, anything you're looking forward to in particular? Uh, as we move to Barcelona? I'm just excited to see how much of a difference that lack of chicane has. I think that we could see a significant step up in the amount of overtaking that happens at this track, because usually this race sucks. Like, (laughs) I mean, this race sucks, genuinely. Um, So, very excited about that. My bold prediction is I think that uh, we're going to get Verstappen DNF. And uh, Perez, uh, Perez win, Hamilton second, Alonzo third. Wow. I think, I think, so I would just build on that and say, if we see a Perez of Verstappen DNF, maybe this is the race that uh, Alonzo gets his win, you know, on home soil. That would be, I'm, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Well, and I'd be willing to sacrifice Perez to make it happen. (laughs) I'm totally honest. That's not a surprise at all. Um, All right. So that's just in, you know, 36 hours time. So look forward to it and we will see you all on the other side. Peace. Enjoyed it as always, buddy. Likewise. Peace.